0: You're listening to CitySpeak with Max masuda The government makes them and developers hate them. Land use regulations form the bedrock of most major metropolitan centers in America, dictating what can and cannot be built within city boundaries. Today we sit down with someone who has devoted his career to this body of law as both a practitioner and lecturer at USC's Gould School of Law. Jim Arnone is in his 30th year as a partner at Latham & Watkins, which has one of the largest environmental and land use practices in the world. Tune in to hear from Jim about this fascinating field of law and how he believes the time might finally have come for the law to evolve to address the acute problems faced by both the state and the country.
1: CitySpeak is proudly sponsored by Batoni Architects. Batoni Architects specializes in making unique buildings and spaces that bring design alive for their clients. Visit betoniarchitects.com to explore their projects.
0: Jim Arnone, welcome to CitySpeak. Nice to meet you. So let's start at the very
1: ground level. What is land use law? So at its very most general, it's how government agencies limit how people can use their own land. So start with the idea that when you own property, you have an awful lot of rights over what that property is. But there's also the basic principle that if you're going to use your land in a way that causes harm to somebody else, maybe another owner or the general public, then you shouldn't be able to do that. So there's some degree of reasonableness inherent whenever you own land. So you start with the idea that there has to be some kind of a regulation so that your use of your land doesn't harm other people or the general public when they want to enjoy land themselves. And when you look at that, there's the different layers of government and all of our layers of government are involved with this. You've got the federal government, you've got the state government, and you've got your municipalities, your cities and your counties, and they're all involved with this. So at a basic level, take the federal government. In the 70s, when most of our environmental laws were passed, the federal government passed the Endangered Species Act. There became a sense that we had to protect species that were at risk of extinction from going extinct. And it kind of just made sense. Like you would have the federal government deal with species because birds fly. They fly all over the place. Animals roam, that kind of thing. In the state here in California, you had a good example is the Coastal Act. The voters passed the California Coastal Act. And it was a similar kind of idea that the state government had to protect the coast because we didn't want to have in California different than the East Coast. We didn't want to have what was thought of at the time as a Miamization of our beaches. Sure. (laughs) We didn't want to have too much (laughs) of uh, development. And then also, I think we're really protective here in California about the general public being able to use the beach. So we passed the Coastal Act. And it's extraordinary. The California Coastal Commission has sweeping land use authority over everything in the coastal zone. So that's like an example of the state. The state also, by the way, has the Planning and Zoning Code, which is the overall land use law that governs most cities in in the state of California.
0: And now I guess we're whittling down to the local level. Why is the paradigm, why is the default paradigm that local governments and local authorities should have such broad discretion on issues of land use.
1: There's a lot packed into that. So, I mean, you're absolutely right because you get down to the local government and that is really the level of government that has primary land use authority. When we think about land use, you think about any controversy over a new project. You think about your city council, your county board of supervisors. That's that's the level. And deeply ingrained, I think, in, in most of our just senses of how things ought to be and frankly, in the law, deeply ingrained, is that these are local decisions. Think about the idea that you're deciding whether a shopping center should be approved. Yeah. You're deciding whether to preserve open space in a particular place. You're deciding there might be some places where you want the single-family homes only with the nice little white picket fences in the backyards, this like mid-century dream of the American dream of yeah. how people want to live, that suburban ideal. Where What you do in different places seems inherently local. You kind of start by saying, why would anybody in Washington or Sacramento say where you should have a single family community in Glendale? So that's the way we've worked forever for a very, very long time. And I think instinctively, we think that's mostly right. But you hit upon like a big problem. What, what happens when you have a big problem? And the obvious one right now is housing. And I guess it's first cousin, homelessness. And and that's where we have a, a real problem. And I think our tradition of having land use be governed at the local level is really running head to head with the idea of when you have a problem bigger than that seems to address. I mean, go back to what we were talking about, about endangered species. You wouldn't think that you know, pick a city. The city of La Kenata, Flint Ridge, is supposed to be responsible for protecting the bald eagle because sometimes a bald eagle might land in a tree there. That right. city can't right. do that. <laughs> yeah. So you need a bigger solution. So is housing and homelessness a bigger solution or not? Yeah. And we're we're struggling with that right now. I think we're seeing, certainly in the last couple of years, and I think this year in particular, it's gonna be a battle royal in Sacramento yeah. about whether the state should be much more heavy-handed with cities and counties. So take one step back. Why would you even start doing that? You start doing that because there's a problem, and you don't think cities and counties are doing enough to solve the problem. Mm-hmm. So why, why might that be? It might be just because of old-fashioned nimbyism, not in my backyard, the idea that people don't really want things like affordable housing in their area often think about all the controversies you have especially in major cities where homeless shelters are proposed almost every community rallies against them if they're nearby they're not popular uses think about density generally if you've got a community with you know lovely single family homes there might not be a lot of space to add any housing unless you're willing to tolerate apartment buildings or higher density in some of these areas. And that will change the feel of the community. So if you want to protect the feel of your community, that probably, and that sounds great, right? You hear that? Sure. Who doesn't want to protect the feel of their communities? It could run right head on into the idea that we need more housing because we do. It's probably the biggest crisis our state is facing. It affects. Our, our work supply, the, our, our labor supply. It affects our ability just to have people live decently. We're not building enough housing. So we do have to do more. I think housing advocates, the last governor, a lot of people in the state legislature are concluding that local government politics are always going to prevent communities that should be building more housing, or not building it themselves, but allowing new sure. housing to be built, should, are, are going to do enough. So the, the more... Top-down approach, I think we're starting to see. We saw a lot of that in the last couple of years. A lot of interest groups run up against of that. Of course, yeah. Uh, we saw SB50's effort. Uh, Senator Weiner in San Francisco made an effort. But you take the idea of a law like that where you're going to effectively force local governments to approve projects. If you force anybody to do anything, you're starting with the idea that they wouldn't do it otherwise. So you know it's going to be an unpopular decision. And it's not like local governments are without some clout. And it's not like they don't also have some good points. I think we all do think these ought to be local decisions. And so if you had local governments that were deciding where and putting regulations but still building enough housing, I don't think anyone would say – but into the local affairs. It's because we're not building enough housing that we're seeing this this push from Sacramento. And I think it's only going to get stronger. Whether we do something about it or not, I can't predict very well, right? But it's only going to get stronger.
0: Well, let's actually let's let's dig in a bit to this interplay between Sacramento and and local laws. And one particular state level statute that you focused much of your both your practice and I think your academic career as a lecturer at USC, and one that is much maligned in the development world is the California Environmental Quality Act, or CEQA, as it's also called. Let's start basic. What is CEQA? And then maybe get into why is CEQA being constantly brought up in issues and debates surrounding the housing shortage in California?
1: You, you ask really loaded questions. There's a lot in that. <laughs> um, so CEQA, California Environmental Quality Act. It's a 50-year-old statute. At its basic, it's an informational statute. What it says is that no state or local governmental entity should take any decision, not just land use decisions, but any decision mm-hmm. that might impact significantly the environment without first studying the impacts, mitigating them when mitigations are appropriate and feasible, and then being aware of those decisions when you when you take them and the idea of SQL has always been it doesn't command any particular result you're allowed to Cut down the last redwood tree under CEQA. You're allowed to do anything. It's about knowledge and information and doing feasible mitigations when you can still accomplish the project's objectives. So it's not intended to dictate results. It's intended to make sure that you don't make a decision in the vac in a vacuum. So if a decision maker, a government decision maker, is going to take a decision that will cause environmental harm, he or she knows it first. And his or her constituencies know it so that they can exercise their free speech and power at the ballot box, however they see fit. So you have the statute. And for the first, you know, roughly half of its existence, it was relatively benign and wasn't hugely burdensome. I have really been entertained. So this is my 30th year practicing land use and environmental law. And this statute is, uh, is 50 years old. And I saw some what might even have been, I think, the first environmental impact report that was done in the city of LA. Wow! It's like a memo of about three and a half pages long. Like it's it, it, amazing. I was laughing because yeah. now we have them, and they're thousands of pages long, right? With attachments that are more thousands of pages long, and they take years to prepare. And so the the statute grew; it it, it expanded greatly. And part of what I You wonder about is like how did something that was not intended to be this burdensome get so terribly burdensome? And I think the biggest piece of that is that you started seeing roughly in the 90s, you started seeing that people were winning lawsuits. Mm -hmm. They would file a lawsuit under CEQA and a major land use project that had all the political support and often all the community support it needed – would have one gadfly or a small group of people or just an individual or maybe a competitor decide, oh, I'm going to sue. And judges started saying, well, that, that document, that CEQA document isn't good enough. And as they got more detailed in court, looking at very specifically, did you adequately study this part of that topic, it got harder and harder to win these cases which meant the documents had to get longer and more detailed, which means more expensive and more time. And so what used to be, I mean, imagine a a three and a half page memo that somebody in the planning department typed up in something like 1971. Now you hire these experts. You've got teams of PhDs. They study things. They do do very detailed reports. So it's become really, really burdensome.
0: I also understand that your firm and your Langis group prepared an annual CEQA case law report I'd just be curious, can you tell us something about the findings that were in that report?
1: Sure, we we did indeed. And first, I have to do a, a shout out to my colleagues. I'm I'm listed, I think, as maybe even the, the lead author or something, which is a complete lie. Um, my partner, Chris Garrett, in our San Diego office, and our colleagues, Lucas Quas and Natalie Rogers and Samantha Sekula, had, took special leadership. And there were probably a dozen people at my firm, and I was not one of them, who had to <laughs> write all of these summaries. I read everything and did some edits, but that was all I did. But what I really liked about it is what we did is we looked, we published it early in 2019. It went to every CEQA court of appeal decision in 2018. And it's really, really telling. So start with the idea that there's a huge amount of CEQA litigation out there. And most of it is in the trial courts that never gets to the courts of appeal. We only looked at the ones in the courts of appeal, the the cases that were resolved in that year at the courts of appeal. And when you look at that, it, it, it tells an interesting story. First, about half of the cases were ordered officially published. And if you'll forgive a little bit of law geek stuff. Please. So in California, every single court of appeal decision is public, of course, and people like me read them all, whether it's published or not published. Published doesn't mean that it's available to you. They're all available to you. But when something is officially certified as to be published in the official reporter's That means it becomes law. It doesn't just apply to the parties in the case, but it applies to everybody. You can cite it as precedent. So of these cases, about half of them were published, which is a pretty high percentage. That, to me, denotes that the courts of appeal are realizing that CEQA is really confusing in a lot of areas. And so at a a higher rate than normal, they're trying to clarify the law a little bit as they go. Um, Another thing that I thought was really interesting about it is there were um, 57 cases that we're talking about, half of them published. Uh, Taking them all as a whole, a little over two-thirds of them that dealt with environmental impact reports had the lead agency, the city or county, and the project applicant winning in full, not losing on a single issue. So I pause for a moment and say, okay, so what does that mean? You can spend years and millions of dollars on a process, still get sued. You have to spend more money and take more years to win at the trial court. And then you go to the court of appeal where three appellate justices consider your case. You look at all of that, and in two-thirds of the cases, all levels of courts concluded that everybody did everything exactly right. That didn't save you a nickel, and it didn't save you a day. But that's the process that we have
0: and not not to say that you have any kind of legal crystal ball by any means but the idea of streamlining sequa has been talked about for many years and i would just be curious now considering that housing is at such a pinch homelessness is at such a peak do you think that we're at a moment when streamlining efforts actually will be successful do you anticipate there being some kind of reform to this overly burdensome CEQA process?
1: So uh, people have been talking about CEQA reform and CEQA streamlining for about half of the statute's existence. I think I first started hearing that term in the mid-90s, and really it coincided with about the time when it started being a huge burden. And people were sitting there saying, well, it was never intended to be this much of a burden. It's not supposed to be this hard, this expensive, and this risky to comply with CEQA. So people started talking about SQL reform and CEQA streamlining. And I have a fundamental pessimism that anything really broad or helpful will ever be adopted. And I'm not, I wouldn't say I'm generally a pessimistic person, but the reason I have this pessimism is you referred to the statute as being maligned. I think it might actually be one of the least popular statutes in the state in the sense that a lot of the regulated community feels that it is very hard to comply with. There's provisions of it that are very vague. And you only know if you got it right years later when a judge tells you whether you got it right. And so it's re- it's a lot of guesswork. It's a lot of risk. It's a lot of money involved. And so it's easy to see how a lot of the folks in the regulated community can have concerns with it. But even some of its strongest proponents, some of my good friends who sue my clients, some of those folks will tell you, at least privately, sometimes even not, not so privately, that they realize it takes too long, it's too expensive, and it's too open to being used by people who don't have environmental motives. They're merely using that as a tool for economic or other goals. So you you put that in a mix and you'd say, well, if you've got a statute that most people think serves a beneficial purpose but is too convoluted uncertain time consuming and subject to abuse you ought to be able to find a way to fix some of those things so that so you start by thinking of course it's going to be fixed but if that was true it would have been fixed a while ago and so you know why nobody agrees on what's wrong with it you can't fix something unless you agree on what's broken and we don't agree on what's broken so you look at you you look at the statue part of what i was describing earlier is how Something that could have been a a three-and-a-half-page memo typed up by somebody in a a city planning department now becomes thousands of pages with more thousands of pages of expert reports, and it's hugely expensive. Literally, for big projects, this process can cost millions of dollars and take many years. And that's before you get to the point where your project finally can get approved. And then somebody, anyone can sue you, even if the project has broad political support and community support. Anybody can sue you. And the inherent risk of litigation makes it be that most projects won't proceed until the litigation is resolved because there's a risk you could lose. Even if you think you did a great environmental impact report and you're very unlikely to lose, there's still some risk. So relatively few people will invest the huge amounts of money of building a project when there's still some risk. You could be told you can't use it or you have to undo it or something. And so when you look at those two steps you look at how can you streamline it. One way of streamlining it is streamlining the front end, making the process less difficult. Another way is streamlining the second half, the litigation. And there have been efforts to do both. On the front end, the effort that is most popular with people who build things and some local governments and some housing advocates is creating exemptions. If you, if you look at like a, an SB 50 concept, It wasn't really talking about an exemption, but it was talking about how housing projects with certain characteristics could be approved in what in land use circles we call by right as a ministerial project. Mm -hmm. And a ministerial project means the city doesn't have any authority to say no. It also means that CEQA doesn't apply. CEQA only applies to discretionary projects where the city has the authority to say no. So by saying that certain housing projects will become by right or ministerial, you're also saying SQL won't apply. And so that would be that would be great for building housing. If you're if you're a housing person, that would be great. But it also takes the power away from the local government and local communities. So once you do that, the whole definition of making something ministerial means you're not allowed to say no. The local government is not allowed to say no. And so it would it would result in a much streamlined process for housing. It would also result in projects being built inherently where some people in the local community wouldn't want them and the local elected officials wouldn't want them. And we have seen, I've, I mentioned that sequel reform and streamlining has been talked about for a very long time, especially a lot in the last decade. We've seen efforts that would start going down that path, falter, get heavily watered down, but get passed in some watered down way. And cynics, and I'll confess to sometimes having been a cynic, um, (laughs) cynics would say, well, nothing at all was accomplished. Well, it's not always nothing. I mean, it's just not very broad streamlining, but it could be helpful on some projects. And we've seen examples of that. We've seen examples of old statutes passed as a watered-down CEQA streamlining that suddenly now in in a different regulatory environment has some kind of benefit and some projects using that. I mean, you may remember SB 375. That was 2007, if I'm remembering correctly. And when it was passed, I actually found an old email. I was sitting reading summaries of legislation on my, on my deck with a cup of coffee one weekend morning, and I sent an email to my partners here and was just giving them my thoughts on the new legislation. And I found that summary for SB 375, and it had a whole bunch of stuff in it. But one thing it had in it was a CEQA exemption, a complete CEQA exemption for certain types of projects. But it got watered down. With so many conditions, I was I laughed, you know, to the extent you can laugh on an email, yeah. and and was saying, like, I don't ever see this being used. Right. Well, it turned out no one used it for a decade. And then actually one of our clients for a project that we worked on was able to use it 10 years later. It's unbelievable. No, it ended up being helpful. Right. And now I, I know of at least 10 projects that are using it. And so it, it sticks into my head as a couple of things. First... I was kind of right in that email, it wasn't all that helpful if it wasn't used for the first decade, sure. but also it's helpful on some things now. And if we take what could happen today in Sacramento, there's the possibility that you can you can make some e- incremental improvements. I also am wondering if there's the possibility you can take things that were already passed in previous watered down Sequa streamlining efforts and maybe remove some of the difficulties. So if you if you take everything that's loaded on a previously passed CEQA streamlining bill and that's why it's not being used much. Maybe you can lighten some of those loads and let it be used a little bit more. Don't think we can get anything more than a marginal improvement, but any improvements probably helpful, especially with housing. And all of that was on the front end side. There's also the the litigations. Please, yeah, on the litigation
0: side what what solutions do you see?
1: So what we have seen in, in a few bills is the idea that litigation should go faster. And so there was a, a statute passed. It created a concept of the uh, environmental leadership development project where there's a bunch of conditions making it very hard to use. So almost nobody uses it. But if you do do that, you have to get certified. It's really kind of tough. But if you do do that and you get certified, then you end up with a project that is required to go through the courts super fast, super, super fast by normal litigation standards. So it's required to go super quickly. Very few projects have done this and of the ones that have done that, it's usually taken a little longer than it was supposed to take, but still super fast compared to if it wasn't one of those. So that's a marginal benefit. It's doesn't make anything faster on the front end. It doesn't reduce your risk on the back end with litigation. But it does make the litigation piece go faster. And so if you could lighten some of the preconditions for that sort of thing, if you could make it a little bit less, mm-hmm. then I could see that moving the needle. And when I am at my most optimistic, especially when we talk about our housing crisis and being able to let more housing happen, I don't think we're going to get broad secret reform for all projects anytime time in my lifetime. But I think we might be able... For high-priority projects like housing projects, especially if there's an affordable component in it, especially if you have it in places where you're not affecting very sensitive environmental resources, you might be able to lighten some of the load, make the litigation go a little faster, maybe take some subject matters out of the mix so maybe you don't have to consider aesthetic impacts, maybe you don't have to consider parking impacts, things like that, and you can make it marginally a little bit better. And when I'm at my most optimistic, that's what I hope will happen. Jim thanks so much for joining us. Thank you very much.
0: Thanks for tuning in to CitySpeak with Max Masuda-Farkas. CitySpeak is produced in partnership with Urbanized Media, with music and audio production by Greg Gordon-Smith. Tune in again for our next episode.